hello everyone. Welcome to the Podside Picnic. What we'd like to do is talk to you guys a little bit about Ursula Le Guin and her, well, one of her masterpieces, uh, The Left Hand of Darkness. Connor, what would you say the the purpose of this podcast is for you? I, the reason I say that is because we're both walking into this with a different agenda list, and I think that's going to make it pretty interesting for people. Yeah, so Pete and I met on Twitter, and of course, if you're listening to this, probably on my mom, or you follow me on Twitter. So, hello. <laughs> um, and yeah, so we met on Twitter through just a set of mutual interests, but I think one of the things that we learned was that Though we did have interests that lined up in a way, it was a matter of things I was just starting to get interested in that Pete has been interested in for a long time. And one of those things is science fiction novels. And we're kind of in a moment where science fiction, of course, not to belabor this too much, but it's it's entering, it's moving out of the realm of so-called genre fiction or genre storytelling into being into entering the mainstream or even becoming in some ways the center of the mainstream increasingly, which is really interesting. And I also, um, I write, you may have seen some of my journalism floating around. I have a book project. And one thing that has happened to me is I have slid into being a sci-fi writer of a sort. Um, and the embarrassing thing is I actually have not read much real sci-fi and I don't know much about it. So I was talking to Pete and I said, okay, I want to learn about sci-fi and you're the right person to teach me. And I think it might be cool if we recorded some of this and put it out there in the world. So that's where we're at. Fantastic. And welcome to the dark side with me, Connor. Um, <laughs> I, as for my part, as, as Connor said, I'm very into science fiction. I've always felt a little bit, well, I, I guess resentful is the wrong word, but as somebody who's a deep reader of science fiction and fantasy, the treatment of those genres has not always been kind by the wider literary world. So one of the reasons I'm enjoying this is it's a great entrance for me to understand like the styles and standards of that literary world a little better, sort of seeing how Connor reacts, what he likes and what he doesn't like, and, and having that conversation with him. So I think we're both going to get very different but very useful things out of it. Yeah, and and to be clear, everyone, um, Pete and I know each other online. We don't know each other super well, actually, yet mm -hmm. as people. And part of this project is just us getting to know one another better and to learn from each other. And um, yeah, so here we are. Excellent. So as Pete said, we are talking about The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin, who is probably as universally beloved and acclaimed uh, as a sci-fi writer, as any sci-fi writer, really. And certainly has some purchase on the so-called literary mainstream, whatever that means. And we'll get into more of that. I'm, I'm well, nodding. I, I'm nodding at you, which is probably a bad habit for the podcast. I'll start working on that immediately. <laughs> yeah, just, just, just yell at me. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, you know, um, Pete. Yeah. Just to help everybody kind of understand what we're doing here a little bit better. This is not a job interview. You do have the job already. Okay. But if you had an interview to be on this podcast, what do you bring to the table? Like, why are you here? My two interests, my two major interests are sort of combining in this. In that one, I am a professional teacher. I teach people to, uh, well, currently I teach people to trade stocks and bonds and that sort of thing in call centers. Point is, I teach and I really like to teach. The flip side of this, we've already talked about a little in that I've, I've always had a book in my hand. 
And 99 times out of 100, that book has been a science fiction book. So there's books that I've done one-off readings of, and then we have things like The Left Hand of Darkness, which, I mean, I've certainly, over the course of my life, read 10 times. And so it's this is sort of a great opportunity for me to, like, offer all of these books that I love so much as little presents to Connor. It's it's kind of a it's kind of a fun thing. And I hope I hope some of the audience is picking these up for the first time too. I think that'd be cool. Yeah, I completely agree. So I think to help people out a little bit here, I know you know a lot about Ursula Le Guin. What can you tell us about her before we dive into this book? Okay. Uh, the, the first answer would be too much. Like I could definitely, <laughs> I, I actually do another podcast, uh, and that one is very much about the weird habits of authors and the goofy things they do. And I actually did an episode about Ursula Le Guin at one point. So I could go deep, but it, I don't think that would be really helpful. But what I can do is talk a little bit about what makes her her. So Ursula Le Guin was the child of two anthropologists. And when I say anthropologists, I'm thinking like, like Mead, like, like people who would embed themselves in, in, uh, Native American tribes to try and understand things on like an I'm equal with you level, like that sort of anthropology. And so when she, had that upbringing and i mean think of her upbringing like she'd sit down at the dinner table and over here you'd have j robert oppenheimer and over here you'd have the last member of a particular uh american indian tribe and they'd all sit around and talk about things and that's sort of how she absorbed things and now as a writer she t seems to approach books and cultures with that level of respect that she picked up then. Of course, I don't really know that. I haven't had the chance to interview her, and considering she's dead, it's unlikely I ever will. But that's certainly the takeaway I get from her. Did I even answer your question, man? I don't even know. Oh, you did. I think what's really interesting to me is, is um, you know, a lot of science fiction writers, in my understanding at least, as a layman, yeah. a lot of them do have particular academic expertise and something they're, they're fascinated by. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting about Le Guin is that unlike a lot of the sort of macho hard sci-fi writers, she's, she, her background is not so much in the hard sciences and that's not so much what her books are about, especially in the mid century when she was writing, that was a little bit unusual. So you're telling us that this is mediated by like, uh, a background in social sciences and we'll get into her politics as well. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, and one of the things she used to say in the interviews is that she tended not to read other people's science fiction. Like, she wouldn't read Heinlein because she's like, well, you know, he's just, it's, it's just long screeds about white people colonizing places. I'm not interested. But, like, she would read, uh, Borges or something like oh, wow. that. <laughs> yes. So she, de she definitely had a rich and varied literary life that had nothing to do with science fiction. And I think that really helped her be different. Hey, that sounds like my reading background so far. So <laughs> maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, you could, well, I, I mean, I, I shouldn't say you could be the next Le Guin. That seems cheeky, but well, that'd be cool. Man, that's putting some pressure on me. I think <laughs> I'll, I'll just say, <laughs> uh, probably not, but you know, she's someone to look up to. Fair um, so actually, that's a good lead in. Um, so I've heard you talk about how Le Guin, and of course, some background for folks, Last Hand of Darkness came out 1968. Um, almost exactly 50 years ago. And not to preview where we're going too much, but it has held up extremely well in all senses. And we'll get to why that's so fascinating. Mm -hmm. But one thing that you've said, Pete, 
she's part of a science fiction movement in that era called the so-called New Wave right. in science fiction. So what the heck is that? Okay, well, the interesting thing about this is, like, if you ever want to read uh, a Wikipedia article that every sentence cancels out every other sentence, like, go out to Wikipedia and type New Wave Science Fiction, because... <laughs> Everybody who wrote it disagrees with each other about what the new wave was. And I think that's a pretty typical response to it. Uh, there are, uh, like, I'm, I'm not going to lay out all the different movements of science fiction, because frankly, that would be boring. But the, the two people tend to know are the Golden Age, which is where you had all the skull measures who wanted to go out and conquer the universe in the name of white America. And then you have uh, cyberpunk which is corporate dystopia, nothing matters anymore, and we just, you know, all of that stuff. And it's, it's, it's become, in the present day, it's become the black mirror, well, if your boss was a computer mate kind of thing. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> so uh, the, the new wave is sandwiched right between these two movements. And what the new wave, what, what everyone can agree with, about, about on this is that the, the new wave authors looked at the golden age authors and said this sucks like all you guys are doing are like going around space conquering people all you talk about is physics this is not art and so the the new age authors went in a bunch of different directions to try and fix that and um i mean ursula Le Guin was fantastic because she brought she also like like uh uh, the Golden Age authors brought a science to it, but that science was anthropology and sociology and arguably economics. Yeah, like other other authors tried different things. Like I have I have a soft spot for Roger Zelazny, who we'll get to at some point, but he basically brought poetry to it, and which made him a great author. But in my opinion, but it it wasn't really great science fiction. In that. You know, you it's it's harder to say that it's a real thing that could happen. But uh, Le Guin's was definitely in this space where she was exploring cultures and the nature of people, and it made it much more realistic science fiction. I think you could really sink your teeth into it. And this was about the new wave. Did I answer that? Yes, I did. Okay, that's a win. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think this is where I'm going to transition to finally, if you guys have been waiting in suspense, saying, well, if you haven't read Left Hand of Darkness, first of all, go out and read it. But second of all, Here's what it's about, essentially. Let's say that there's a planet called Gethin, which is very far from here, and is populated by human beings with human cultures that are more or less recognizable physically. Mm -hmm. But what they have on this planet that also happens to be very wintry and snowbound most of the time, they are what you might call, they don't have a single set gender or sex, depending when they, when they go into heat called Kemmering. They can take on the male or female aspect when they mate. They don't have a real sex drive most of the time. It's only in the mating period that they have that. And so the whole thing is kind of built out of the concept that you have this world where gender fluidity underlies all structures and is kind of the central, you know, this sort of central fact that sets them apart from recognizable Earth societies. And then into this mix comes this envoy from this big interplanetary uh, order who's on this very lofty mission to get them to, first of all, recognize that he is who he says he is. He's an Earth human and that he's come from this from this group of planets and that he, you know, to accept that and to join this sort of greater cosmopolitan open interplanetary system. And that's what's going on in the story. And that's so that's, a you know, a brief summary. 
and I, I want to use that to lead into that. So imagine that coming out in 1968, by the way. So I obviously wasn't alive back then. And I, you know, we're now in a moment where the fluidity of gender and breaking down the boundaries and hierarchies around it is really culturally central in the zeitgeist. And, you know, 1968 would have been a whole different thing. So I guess I want to know from Pete, how has Left Hand of Darkness been received historically? And what is the view now? And what's the difference between the two? Okay. Well, one thing that I will give you some idea is that uh, the Left Hand of Darkness has never been out of print. Yeah. So, I mean, on there's a lot of authors that take great risks and suffer severe penalties. Like in the past, you and I have talked about Herman Melville, for example, who wrote Moby Dick, the standard of uh, great books for a time, and immediately everyone lost all interest in him and he became a patent clerk. Didn't happen to her. She received more or less instant recognition and fame as a result of this writing. It was tied to a movement. And it's kind of hard to say, you know, the chicken or the egg on this, uh, but it was uh, feminism, basically. What right. she was doing with this book was trying to explore the nature of gender, specifically what what does being a man do to a culture and what does being a woman do to the culture and what would happen if that wasn't there, like that sort of thing. It's, I sort of... On the one hand, I think this was a very, very sophisticated take and one that, that took a lot of thought and went some very deep and interesting places. I mean, like we, we could we could make this a much longer talk, podcast talking about this book where I think uh, it holds up very well is that examination of gender, which is a very it's a very open. It's a very honest. It's, it's an attempt to understand rather than an attempt to make a point, which I think always makes for a better uh, uh, thought piece. The, the other thing I would say is that as time is going on, this book is being looked at as she is exploring uh, what it is to be non-binary what it is to be trans, for example. And I don't think that was her intent. I think that is a, a happy coincidence. I think it's a good thing that this book ties into that, uh, that examination. But I think fundamentally, when she was looking at it, she was looking at women's lib. She was looking at the ERA. And that was her focus. And it just, because she did it from a biological standpoint, it, it touched a number of other bases. So that's really interesting. So as I was saying, like now the idea of absolute gender fluidity or they're not needing to be sort of strict boundaries or hierarchies around gender or sex at all is now something that we're exploring that very controversial, but is in the center of the culture in a lot of ways. And you're saying that correctly, and that's something I hadn't even thought about. 1968, it's much more traditional, you know, what we now look at as traditional male-female relations, that there is a binary and mm -hmm. that you're navigating that binary. And she's thinking through, arguably at least, when this plops into the culture 50 years ago, it's, all right, how do we nav navigate this thing where we recognize there is a binary and, you know, because it is important to say, for instance, that like, yes, most of the time, for instance, in this book, she navigates the gender problem by characters are defaults uh, described with male pronouns, for instance. Right. Uh, and that may seem very significant to you if you're looking at this from a gender studies perspective, you know, um, whether it's just a matter of convenience or what. But, you know, a lot of this is basically it, it, in some in some ways, this book feels like uh, they're sort of how do you say this? Like the, the, the Gathenians are sort of like neutered male characters somehow. 
So it's not like there's a complete, and I also don't, I don't think, by the way, that they get to necessarily choose. There's some kind of hormonal exchange that happens that determines what their, their, what role they're taking in the mating. Is that right? Yeah. It seems like a biological process. You, you're not like, I get to, I get to top, you know? Yeah. So there's no, there's, no, there's neither choice nor absolute determinism nor, and so the point is, it's very hard to pin down and say, like, and reduce what she's doing. That's why it feels so fresh because there is so, because, the core of it is all about fluidity, right? right. So you're not going to like nail down Le Guin and say like, well, she was, she was backwards in this way. Because again, this is a world where you're imagining an app where you're imagining people who just do not have the concept of gender the way that we think of it. They don't charge their social interactions with that concept at all. And, you know, not to get too far ahead of myself, but one thing that she postulates is that these societies, they're violent towards one another, but it's at a very unorganized individual level. And they haven't invented war. And in the course of the novel, it's sort of indirectly argued via like research documents and stuff that maybe they failed to invent war because war is this inherently masculinist violation of an entire nation. Um, that it's almost like a, a large scale rape. And whether that's true or not, or what you think of it, the point is that like, you know, she's positing all of that stuff we associate with gender is over here and you have the envoy coming from a world that has gender trying to interpret things through that lens. And the point is his lens never really fully works. Like he gets better at understanding this culture over a few years, but the point is it's never going to be fully compatible with what he's used to. And even though he's propositioned by a few Githenians to have sex, he never does. He's always going to be on the other side of that fence. Um, does that, do you agree with that piece? Yeah. And one of the things he says periodically is like, I'm falling into this trap when I'm looking at this person and talking to them, I'm treating them like a man and that's wrong. Or I'm treating them, you know, I, I think of this person as female and it, and it's, it's, it's interesting that she keeps going back and playing to that and reinforcing it because I, I, well, you know, I should be careful here when I'm talking about like what I think her intents were and, you know, this was about feminism. At the end of the day, I've got to admit that I have never crawled inside of Ursula Le Guin's brain. Sure. We take that as a given. I think it's fair, though, to say that 50 years ago, even the, that, that, that liberator, a lot of liberatory, emancipatory discourse around gender was still about how do we ameliorate this imbalance between males and females it was it was there was probably less of a pro culturally prominent discourse around abolishing gender or, or complete fluidity or an abolition of boundaries i think that's that's a sit sorry I'm, I'm rambling now no no that's but, perfect um, i and, think yeah go ahead oh well, i was going to say and one of the things that i keep thinking about in this book is i don't think there's any references to being gay at all right actually that's interesting and so there there is some there are some deviations, I believe, from this, like, you only go into heat at certain times thing. And those people are called perverts in, yeah. uh, in their, in their language. So there is some, some irregularity on like a, and it functions on like a physical level, right? Um, you know, so and it's kind of a, a hard, it's hardly explained how that works. It certainly is the case that Gathenians think it's very funny that this tall earthling, uh, has to carry his sexual organs outside his body. They find that very <laughs> funny. Um, that's not the norm for them. Put and, like that, I think it's kind of funny, actually. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think Le Guin is also doing some really interesting things that are still arguably that are strange and revolutionary. One thing, for instance, is we're told at one point in the story that the envoy, who we haven't even named yet, named Genly I, Genly, play on gender, right? Um, 
he's he's the earthling envoy and he's not very old i think at one point his Mangathenian friend says he's not yet 30, but he's spent most of his life training to be an envoy. And he's voyaged so far from Earth that while he was in cryostasis or whatever, everyone he knows is now dead. Um, so he shows up and he is a tall, much taller than almost anyone on this planet. He's a tall and dark skinned earthling, I think he's described as. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Gathenians, which makes sense in a snowy, wintry climate, they tend to be very pale. They're like pale with dark hair. And, uh, they don't, that, they don't seem super worried about race. So it's almost like they're different nations, right? And part of the story is that he's come in and upset the political order by saying, Hey, I'm a space envoy. I landed on this planet. Hello. Join us. Of course he upset the political order, right? That would happen on Earth or anywhere else. Um, and what has happened is the backlash to him asking them to be more cosmopolitan is there are people now scrambling to sort of invent what we would call nationalism and to sort of like to invent the things that Le Guin is saying have been harder for them to invent, invent arguably not Le Guin saying this, but people in the narrative are saying it <coughs> arguably because that recognize gender. But again, they also don't have race in the same way. So what's the relation of race to gender hierarchies? What's the relation of war in foreign relations, to gender hierarchies? I don't think that this book takes an absolute argumentative position on any of that because it's a novel, but it, it leads you some interesting directions to think about like, what are the wellsprings of, all of these hierarchies and forms of violence in general. Um, and it just begs a bunch of interesting questions. You know, I think that's, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, is, uh, is war and do- it's, it's domination sexual is a big part of what's going yeah. on there in that area. Right. right. And I, I don't think, that, I don't think that we have any mentions of Gethenians having kinks, but they might, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, much different book. Yeah. Right. Um, so, I think just to ground us a little bit more in your own experience. So, so to kind of on that topic, like what, when did you first read this? You said you read it like 10 times. And I, think, I think it's awesome. It's a great book. Oh yeah. Uh, when did you first read it? And like now reading it again for this podcast, like what's changed? Sure. I think I first read it when I was 10. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, I, I was in California with my parents. So I was 10 years old when I first read this. And of course, like at 10, I did not get anywhere near as much out of this book as, as uh, many people could have like, but I mean, it was a space story. There was interesting things going on and I saw it as almost a nature adventure. And the, it 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 was nice in that it did plant some ideas about gender differences that later on I was able to pick them up and understand them a little bit better. So I think when I first read it, I don't think I was really sophisticated enough to genuinely pick up what was going on, but uh, it it did me some good. Oh, right. It was probably better for you than if you'd read Ender's Game when you were 10 and were like, I'm going to be special and kill the space bugs. Right. But. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it certainly didn't. I didn't walk out of that and, you know, come to come to my parents and say, well, you know, do you do you think war is sex related? You know, like, <laughs> yikes. How does war relate to the gender binary? <laughs> what do you think about this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can see that going wrong. And um I, uh, this is a lighthearted cast and I'm very into that, but in one of my most recent reads of The Last Hand of Darkness, something real happened that I think is pretty important. When I first got involved in, in Twitter and meeting people on there and that sort of thing was probably somewhere in 2016. 
and I was re- rereading uh, The Left Hand of Darkness at the same time. And at the time, I was not comfortable with non-binary gender. Like, ah. it, it seemed, and I, I am so embarrassed, but, you know, I'm being honest here, it seemed performative to me. It seemed like a thing that people were doing rather than a thing that they were. Because well, I think... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to make a joke about it. A lot of people still think that, so... <laughs> yes. Go ahead. Well... Unfortunately. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, 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 I feel terrible that I felt that way for such a large chunk of my life, but it, the combination of meeting a bunch of people on, on Twitter that had, like, real lives and needs and wants and humor and all of that, who were non-binary on one level or another, because there's like a million levels, and reading The Left Hand of Darkness again and realizing that, like, thoughts about this have been in my life for a long time through science fiction, it sort of allowed me to to take a step back and say, well, how about I just shut up and listen for a while? And that's really what I tried to do. I mean, I'm not... I really sound woke right now. I apologize. But the point is, the book helped me come to terms with a new idea. And I'm very grateful for that. Well, it's interesting because it's like this is a book that arguably laid some progressive good foundations in you as a 10-year-old. And you're coming back to it, uh, you know, as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know how old you are. I'm not going to ask. But um, and you're <laughs> uh, and it's, it's having the same it's doing the same work to you in a different social context. A different set of questions and it's doing a good thing you know uh it's it's making you have just a more broadly emancipatory and accepting politics yeah and that's great and it it taught me a lesson that really i don't think it was particularly intended by the author well yeah i mean i gosh we could probably do some deep scholarship and see if if Le Guin ever commented on the stuff the, 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 the using let's say if Le Guin ever used the language we use now to discuss these things, um, which again, I think has entered the culture in a big way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but like she may or may not have, but the, what's so, what's so wonderful about this book and what makes it so remarkable is that it does what only really good novels can do, which is that it can feel fresh 50 years later and feel fresh, not just aesthetically, but feel fresh at this deeper political and moral level where it's like somehow you and this piece of art have intuited something that can, be i don't want to say eternal but is is not like just super contingent on when you wrote this and where and that's it's really the dream for artists so that's one of the highest compliments i can possibly give to any piece of art yeah well and it's such a weird moment that like a book that i've read a bunch of times over the course of my life could help me have a transformative moment like in my 40s like it's it's I mean I I I it just shows I don't really know how brains work because that certainly shocked me, Connor. Yeah. What the, oh, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead, please. Well, I one of the things that's definitely happening with this conversation is that you're asking most of the questions, and I I I think it's about time to turn it around because we're getting to the point within the book where I think your expertise is really coming into play. Yeah, fire away. Okay, so. Uh, a piece of this project, a big piece of this project, is you trying to change your relationship to science fiction and genre fiction in general. How does The Left Hand of Darkness fit into that for you? Well, um, I, I think that the answer I just gave is a big part of it, is to say that it is truly shocking when anything 
from 50 years ago or 10 years ago uh, even feels as fresh and as urgent as left-handed darkness i think can at its best mm-hmm. so that 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 in of itself and of course this is one of the most celebrated sci-fi novels ever so there's a you know you know so of course your expectations are a little bit higher but i honestly didn't expect this it, it to function on that level and to make it a little bit more concrete i think speaking as someone who reads in large measure to learn more about writing mm-hmm. um Le Guin as a storyteller is fascinating to me. I will keep coming back to her because, for instance, I think in most sci-fi novels and in probably most stories in general, um, if I give you the premise of, all right, this envoy comes out of the sky one day and says, I am a space envoy. Uh, oh. uh, you, know, you need to change your whole way of life and get your shit together politically so you can join us, which is basically what he says in, right. in much nicer words. Um, because he's going to like this complicated feudal society. There's a lot there, by the way. Please read the book and I'm not going to belabor it. But okay. If, if you're doing that as a storyteller, my impulse and the impulse I think of most storytellers is going to be, well, we need to open with a freaking landing, right? Like that needs to be in a story. But instead, Le Guin opens with, um, Genli I, the envoy, as part of this really weird ritualistic procession in the capital of Carhide which is the sort of backwards, feudal, monarchical, very confusing uh, nation that he's spent most of his time in um, on this planet so far. And it, it's a little bit disorienting. You're like, all right, what? And in fact, I think if you picked it up at the bookstore and you read like one page, you might be like, wow, this seems to like assume a lot of lore and world building that I don't, I don't know. And of course, this is part of a larger cycle of novels called the Hanish novels. So there is stuff there. But the <laughs> point is, she's giving readers... She's very casually and cannily giving readers a level of credit for, the, for intelligence and being able to just step in like that. That is very rare in any storytelling, literary or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does it change in relation to science fiction? I think for right now, as we haven't gone super far into this project, I can only say that it's, it's incredibly – it's very much exalted my, my view of Le Guin uh, sure. and what she can do as a storyteller. And I, I think that in many ways – the reason that I've come to use sci-fi elements in my own work is, you know, because it, as has often been said, and I think is, is said in one of the introductions to Left Hand of Darkness, like science fiction, of course, is about extrapolation. You have some high concept thing about the world that you want to push to its logical extremes and make it concrete. You extrapolate it into some concrete structure or element in the story you're telling, right? And that's in many ways what science fiction, I would say, Pete can, Pete's the expert. I'm, I'm the idiot. But um, <laughs> you I don't know about that. But- well, that's a conventional view, I think, right? Yeah. And Le Guin is a master of that because, like, as I was saying earlier, to generate this whole, to generate not only the lore and the world building, which I think in some ways is the easier part, right? Because we all have, we know all the conventions of that, but to generate character and plausible storytelling out of this one concept of a, of a world and a people that are fully gender fluid and therefore don't conceptualize of social hierarchies in the way that we do. It is remarkable. It's remarkable in a lot of ways how she manages that. To give just one example, I would say we don't really see much fighting. There is violence in the story. We're told about fighting. The story is not driven by that. And of course, one way that she's doing that is by saying, all right, this is a winter planet. So the climactic sort of struggle is going to be the main characters against the elements. They're crossing like a really big open winter expanse. I'm hopefully not giving away too much there. Um, and stuff like that where it's like, all right, if I'm reasoning away from sort of earthling hierarchical senses of domination, where do I do it? Where do I go with my story? And at every turn, Le Guin has thought that through. Um, so I think Le Guin is a, when it comes to taking your high concept ideas 
and turning them into story in the truest sense of every element of the novel grows out of this original conceit. I don't know of almost any writers that can match Le Guin. That's what I would say about that. Okay, follow-up related question. Uh, in the structure of your answer, you it was clear that you've had previous exposure to Le Guin. And what was that exposure? So a long time ago, when I was like 14, I sure. read Wizard of Earthsea. Oh. And, <laughs> and honestly, I didn't think much of it. I think that something about her style, which is, this is funny, that book, when I was much younger, felt oddly archaic to me. It felt dated. It didn't feel urgent and exciting in the way that more recent YA stuff might have felt. I think I also happened to be at that point in my least literate phase. And one reason we're doing this project is because the ages when one culturally is supposed to read sci-fi, and this is stupid, but it's like, this is how it's like, you're given sci-fi novels when you're like 12. Right. Like, you know, 12 through 17. And then, and then if you're a serious reader, you might keep reading sci-fi, but you're going to start reading John Updike or whatever at some point. Um, if only and, to get dates. Yes. Right. And even though I've become a guy who's interested in all of this stuff, um, when I was that age, I was at my least literate. I had read a lot as an elementary school kid. And then in junior high and the first part of high school, I didn't read for pleasure almost at all, which is shameful and horrible and stupid. Uh, it probably made me value reading more later on, actually, because I, I, I ended up missing it so much. But yeah, I mean, I want to go back now and read Earthsea. This is one of those moments, picking over this book so much, which has been really rewarding. It's one of those moments where you're like, you need to go back to things in your past and see what you can really get out of them. And I think that's, you know, to get meta, this is kind of the point of this project. We want to, we wanted to add richness to our own reading experience in a particular way. Mm -hmm. And we hope to give it to yours as well. <laughs> to exactly. Well, but, and, you yeah. know, those Earthsea books, my relationship to them, I won't go too deep in this direction, but they're sort of complicated because what she tried to do was to connect the stories to uh, Pacific Island mythos and outlook. And so on huh. the, yeah, so she made this rich, fascinating, non-Tolkien, and thank God, much thinner set of books but it, it would be very hard for her to fend off a charge of cultural uh, appropriation. Interesting. So I had never heard that. I have to think about it. Um, that, boy, I think we should get into cultural appropriation when we talk about different novels. But mm -hmm. hold that thought because that is really interesting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, boy, let me check my list. I, I, I tried to prep a little for this. Um in in this, we talked a little bit about the the key lessons you think uh, uh, Left Hand of Darkness has for writers, specifically like when uh, when the story started and the man versus nature aspects of it. Uh, is there anything else that really popped out at you? It's like this this is a this is a tool I'm I I need for my toolbox, or I should I should experiment with this. So in keeping with the theme of giving her readers a lot of credit for being intelligent, which is tough to do and hard to navigate, it sounds easy. But like, I'm going to give an aside here and say that when you encounter people in the publishing industry, um, agents and editors, like they tend to try to <laughs> tune their reading such that they're assuming that readers are not very bright. And there's a reason they do this because they're trying to sell books, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not a knock on anybody in particular. It's just to say like, this is kind of when you see writers who are able to navigate that capably, um, that's one thing that I find so satisfying about it because it is hard to do. And I'm going to read a little bit. To show you one of the techniques that Le Guin deploys, I'm, I'm going to read a little bit from chapter nine of Left Hand of Darkness, about halfway through the book. It's called S. Raven the Traitor, and it's introduced with this little epigraph. It says, An East Karhidish tale as told in Gorin Herring by Tobard Chorhoa 
and recorded by G.A. The story is well known in various versions, and a Hobbin play based on it is in the repertory of traveling players east of Kargov. So we know that not only is this a is folklore, it's also introduced in a sort of academic context. Um, and then we go, long ago, before the days of King Argaven I, who made Carhide one kingdom, there was a blood feud between the domain of Stock and the domain of Estre in Kermland. The feud had been fought in forays and ambushes for three generations, and there was no settling it, for it was a dispute over land. Rich land is scarce in Kerm, and the domain's pride is in the length of its borders, and the lords of Kermland are proud men and umbrageous men, casting black shadows. It chanced that the heir of the flesh had the lord of Estre, a young man, skiing across Icefoot Lake in the mouth of the month of Irem, hunting, hunting pestry, came onto rotten ice and fell into the lake. Though by using one ski as a lever on a firmer ice edge, he pulled himself up out of the water at last. He was in almost as bad case out of the lake as in it, for he was drenched. The air was Kirem. Night was coming on. He saw no hope of reaching Estre eight miles away uphill, and so set off towards the village of Ebos on the north shore of the lake. As night fell, the fog flowed down off the glacier and spread all out across the lake, so he could not see his way, nor where to set his skis. Slowly he went for fear of rotten ice, yet in haste because the cold was at his bones, and before long he would not be able to move. So it goes on like that, and he meets some people who help him who are supposedly enemies, and it's this very cryptic, allegorical, um, Karhaidish, you know, legend and folktale. And again, these are, these are, inter- this kind of thing is interspersed in the novel along with a few things that are more like explicit kind of academic notes that were given to the envoy. I think we're supposed to believe mm-hmm. to inform about the planet. Um, and those are interspersed throughout the narrative. And they're not always delivered in ways that are like, this is obvious. Like, this, this applies to what you just saw and what you're just about to see. Instead, Le Guin feels comfortable luxuriating in all the stuff I was just reading where very rich, rich, but also mythic descriptions of landscape, mm-hmm. um, of really, of, of giving you the sense that she's done the lore and the world building, but she's pared it down to this level where she can convey it through these mythic structures. Um, and all of that I think is extremely satisfying, especially if you write, cause you're like, well, these are, these are the kind of tricks that I wish I could deploy. I would love to learn how to deploy that are not just sort of beat by beat plot. But that do enrich the story and don't don't take and, and you know anyway I go yeah. on and off but this is like um, this is kind of where I really admire Le Guin. Well, it's a um, in in the age of pulp and e- even more so in the golden age of science fiction, a common thing to do at the beginning of a chapter would be to create a fake snippet of a newspaper article. Or, you know, something like that, a telegram. And the idea was there's to create the image that there's this wider world around the action. And I've always thought that was a very clever thing to do. But what what Le Guin is doing here is like she's she's doing like ethnographic tracks and uh, creation myths and things like that and fitting them in. And from an anthropological approach, I mean, I think that's really exciting. I can't think of anybody else who's done that. Well, and I would say it's interesting about the newspaper conceit, for instance, is a lot of times storytellers do that. It can be, it can be at its worst, a very cheap and easy way to deliver necessary information without having to dramatize it. Right. Yeah. What, what Le Guin is doing is almost like inverting that where it's like, you don't technically, you don't strictly speaking need to know Carhaidish myths that are cryptic and weird and sometimes confusing because like their, their sense of what a moral is, is different than ours because it's a different, it's a radically different culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she does a good job conveying that as well. You don't really need it. It's not cheap at all. 
it's it's and it's not just to prove the depth is there. Um, it's just hmm, how to say this. It it's about how deeply you can, you really are inhabiting the concepts that are underlying your story. And in Le Guin's case, it almost feels like the level of witchcraft because it's like, man, how did she how did she figure that out? Like, how do you how do you get to the point where you're writing like obscure weird myths about these people? I'm the only writer that's done that to be sure. But um, yeah, it's there's nothing cheap about it, and I think I could think for a very long time about Le Guin because what Le Guin is up against, and it's something that I'm very interested in, and one reason I'm doing this podcast, sure, is this is the the the, the friction between. The sort of what we tend to think of culturally as the high-minded literary impulse of whatever it means to create the great important art, <laughs> uh, which I think Le Guin is doing and is and is trying to do. So whatever it means that versus just just a, the the friction between that and the, what we suppose to be the function of entertainment, what's legible in the mass culture, what is really central and accessible to a lot of people. These things are not actually a dichotomy. We talk about them as if they are a lot of the time. And Le Guin, right. of course, is navigating that, I would say, as well as almost anyone I've encountered. What were you going to say, Pete? Oh, well, um, you've been going high with this. I'm going to go low. Um, yeah. You've seen <laughs> Reservoir Dogs, right? Oh, actually, no. Oh, oh, man, that sucks. <laughs> okay, new homework assignment for you. Um, so in Reservoir Dogs, there's the point where a uh, an undercover cop is preparing to tell a joke like his handler is running him through a joke that he's going to tell to the the criminals and so the, the, it's like okay you can't just tell this joke you've got to visualize what were you wearing at the time you were at the the event where this story happened what were they doing what food did you have before it's like building that fuller world around the bare bones of the story and i really think that's what ursula Le Guin was doing here it's like she was very interested in this world as a study and so she as much as she could built it like at some point she was sitting around and it's like well god what would the creation myth be like of a of a of a world where everybody was both genders and she yeah. and so she made one. Well, I'm going to make a supposition here that I can't back up with factual evidence. So Okay. But I think it's very interesting on in what you're saying. So I think one thing one reason that fantasy and sci-fi and genre fiction generally gets disparaged um, mm -hmm. going on the theme of this supposed dichotomy that we're smashing is there's often there's often a feeling that when even very lauded authors in those genres are doing an immense amount of world building there's a huge degree of wish fulfillment, which is considered, I think, is often looked down upon. I would say that George R. R. Martin and Tolkien are two great examples of people who I think could be reasonably accused of a degree of wish fulfillment in their worlds in diff much different ways. They're much different guys. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but whether or not you agree with that, so that's a whole other topic to open, but I think that's often how it gets cast in the culture. What I would say about Le Guin is I get the sense that she's, she's more like, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name, the French poet. Stefan Mayarm, who said one of my favorite quotes about writing, he said, I have that in me, which would count the number of buttons on my hangman's jacket. And, you know, I think generally what he meant by that was an incredibly cold, icy, but also, but also somehow empathetic and human, um, view of what he was doing. And Le Guin, I think, does a better job of taking that, that incredible, uh, that incredible distance where I don't have the sense that she's, I don't have this feeling of wish fulfillment or in any, any kind of cheap exploitation or gratification in this world. It might interest her for all I know. And I can't, 
I can't make a claim about this. It might have really interested her to live in a world like Geffen, perhaps, and that would be kind of cool. It might interest me too. But um, it'd be a cool because, vacation. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I, I think that you'll agree if you read this book, folks who are listening. If you haven't already read it, there's nothing cheap about it. It doesn't feel like, um, well, I'm not going to disparage other authors, but it doesn't feel like <laughs> doesn't feel like they're enacting any of their. Doesn't feel like she's enacting her fantasies. In fact, a lot of like a lot of this story is about uh, you know not ha- not getting what you want, not being satisfied. Like generally, I is a very noble and cool and interesting character. He's also very sexually frustrated throughout this book. One of the funniest parts of the book is, um, I don't think I'm giving much too much away when I say that he finally does manage to re-encounter some Earthling humans, and he has not encountered an Earth woman who's you know fully always in a woman's state for years at this point. And it says that he can only go a few minutes before he has to run off to his chambers, <laughs> and you know. There's, there's a great sense in the story of like <laughs> a, a very adult sense of sticking with the mission, of being humble, of not getting what you want, even when you're the hero. So even the heroes get what they want. That's an important point. And I would also say, again, this is, there is a hero. There are heroes in the story. People do do extraordinary and impressive things. But the hero is not moving towards some kind of domination or ultimate victory over everything and everyone else. That's also a really important underlying logic of the book. And one of the things that makes Le Guin such a mature interesting and timeless writer i would say does that does that sound fair yeah yeah i mean the the vast majority of science fiction and i'm not spoiling anything here because i think we can say the vast majority of fiction is based around the idea that there are good guys and there are bad guys and who's gonna win and Le Guin doesn't have any time for that crap like she's very focused on how people interact with each other. She she's actually creating what feel like real worlds where there are no clean answers like that. Right. And in this particular story by the way, there are always characters who are doing nasty things to generally or people he cares about and they're being set up as bad guys, but it doesn't get resolved in a normal way. Them getting their comeuppance or them somehow them losing you know, in a sense, maybe they do, but it's not that important to the story. And there's all these full starts on that where you're like, okay, this is going to become the main antagonist. And it's like, no, there's never, there's never a main antagonist. There's just a sort of very organic set of movements of, well, this is a plausible set of ways in which people might struggle to respond to a space envoy that's like shattering their whole world. Um, and oh yeah, I can go on and on about this. But the more we talk about it, the more I want to say, which yeah. is again, a really high compliment to give to a piece of fiction. So go go get it now if you don't have it and if you have read it i hope that we've done it justice um i think that's probably a good place to wrap don't you think absolutely um i think the other thing i would like to say here um is if you are looking for another book by ursula Le Guin, a further recommendation i would recommend the dispossessed um it's in the same hainish cycle of books and it's uh it's it's basically about anarcho communism and it's uh, a pretty interesting society she set up there too, but I won't go too deep into it. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to reading that. However, it has to come second on my reading list behind the next book we're doing for the pod, which is if possible, uh Pete and I have managed to pick a sci-fi book that's probably even more widely read <laughs> in the last few decades than Last Hand of Darkness. Yep. We're gonna do <laughs> we're gonna do William Gibson's Neuromancer. Uh, so if you want to read along with us and you're hearing this now, go pick that up. Or if you've read it before and you probably have, um, <laughs> just wait eagerly for our our annoying voices to come back. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, well, Connor, I, this has been a lot of fun. I would say as a test rocket for this podcast, I would definitely call it a success. Very excited for the next one. I am super pumped as well. This has been a lot of fun, Pete. Awesome.